Today's reading comes from Galatians 1, verse 1 to 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. All right, as you're seated, let me pray. Father, we ask you that you would open our eyes to see, that you would open our ears to hear, that you would open our hearts to believe the depth of your love to us in Christ. I pray every single one of us, Lord, would be captivated anew by the wonder of your love and the beauty of your grace and the splendor of your glory. Would you help us, God, as we Look at this text, begin our study of Galatians, and we seek to live our lives faithful to you, that you would be glorified in our midst. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning to you. I want to add my welcome to Jake's. My name is Brett. I'm part of the team here, and uh, it is my joy this morning to be opening up Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. As you just heard read, part of the, uh, the beginning first five verses of Paul's letter to the churches in the Roman province of Galatia. Uh, if you came in uh, by way of the connect table back there, and maybe you heard this last week, maybe you didn't, maybe you don't know, uh, that we've prepared a little booklet for our study of Galatians. Uh, we are going to be in Galatians for 27 weeks, and if you're part of a community group, as Jake mentioned earlier, your community group discussion questions are actually in this booklet, where there's a place that you can make some notes, and, uh, and then a whole page you can make notes on. Also, just as a, a quick introduction to Galatians, and some key terms that we thought would be important to define. And so if you did not grab one of these on the way in, there should be some back there at the connect table. You can feel free to mess this room up right now and get some. The first gathering sort of all got up and went over there. That was awkward a little bit, but that's okay. You can do that. If you want one, you want to take notes in it, you can do that. Um, we just said uh, they cost about five bucks to print. And so we just said, just make a donation if you can on the way in. If you don't, don't worry. Some of us will make sure that we make a little extra to, uh, to, to make sure you can get one if you don't have cash. All right. What we want to do as we begin a new book of the Bible, one of the things that we try and do oftentimes here when we begin a new book of the Bible is we want to lay a little foundation. We want to lay a little context, a little historical background. We want to put some information out there that will help us as we see where the letter is going to be going. And so we're going to set the stage by looking at verses 1 through 5, and then what we'll do is uh, we'll spend the next 26 weeks looking at the rest of it. Does that sound good to you? <clears throat> Four of you love Galatians. That's fantastic. Um, really looking forward to beginning this book of the Bible. One of the things that I look forward to every time we start a new book of the Bible is, is trying to set this context, trying to set the foundation of where we're going uh, by understanding the context from where the letter came. So there is a particular situation, there is a particular context, and a particular group of people who we need to understand a little bit if we're going to understand the message from Paul's letter to the Galatians. And so the way we're going to do it this morning is this. We're going to look at Paul and the churches in Galatia. First thing we're going to look at. We're going to look secondly at Paul's apostolic authority. And then third, we're going to look at Paul's gospel of grace. So Paul the apostle wrote this letter to the churches in Galatia. We'll look at Paul and the churches in Galatia. Paul and his apostolic authority and Paul and his gospel of grace. This is where we're going. Chapter one, verses one and two. Here's what it says. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, 
who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who were with me to the churches in Galatia. Now, this is how you began a letter in the first century Greek world. You started it out by saying, Paul is the one who's sending it to the churches of Galatia, or the recipients, and then verse 3, you would see if you're looking at your Bible, grace and peace to you, and it's got a greeting. It's not how we start letters. We start letters like this. Dear Christ City Church, body of the letter, grace and peace, Brett. That's how the letter would go. You would send a letter to somebody and say, to whom it may concern the body of the letter, sincerely your name. That's our standard way of writing a letter. This was their standard way of writing a letter. Paul the Apostle to the churches of Galatia, grace and peace to you. So the immediate question, if we're looking at this without making any assumptions, who is Paul and who are the churches in Galatia? That's what we want to look at first. Paul doesn't just drop in out of nowhere. Paul, if you're familiar with the New Testament a little bit, Paul wrote 13 of the 27 letters in the New Testament. Uh, Paul has the account of his conversion and the beginning and quite a few of his missionary journeys logged for us in Acts, which is the historical book of the early church. And so we see from about Acts 6, 7, and then 8, we see Paul converted in Acts chapter 9. And then the rest of the book of Acts basically is about his missionary journeys, his life, and the things that he gave himself to. So what I'm saying is we actually know quite a bit about Paul. Now, like all of us, Paul had a past. And like some of us, past that he maybe would have preferred to forget. Paul says later on in chapter 1, we'll see this in a couple weeks, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Probably not the first line on your pastoral CV. You don't put that on there when you're applying for a job that, hi, I'm, I'm interested in working with the church. I used to be a harsh persecutor of the church and tried to destroy it. It's all good, though, because God got a hold of me. That's the next part of Paul's story, and that's actually where God is being more glorified. Uh, The past memory of our sin, I just want to say this quickly, because I, like Paul, have a past where I, like Paul, probably have asked the question, why? I I know I've asked the question, probably Paul asked it, Lord, why didn't you save me sooner? Why'd you let me go through that season before you revealed yourself to me? Paul had done some things that I know he probably wishes he hadn't done. I, and probably some of you, had done some things that I wish I hadn't have done. And I remember asking a mentor of mine when I first came to Christ, why doesn't God just wipe my memory of some of that stuff that I did between maybe the ages of 15 and and when I was almost 20 when I came to faith? Why doesn't he just take that? And here's what he told me. He said, your memory of your past is part of your humility before God. He said it's a reminder of who you once were so that you can see that contrasted with who you now are and that you can give God glory for that. And I thought that was important for us to see. Paul has that same kind of story. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God and violently tried to destroy it. We see a few other things about Paul, starting really in Acts chapter 6. And so that's where his story the connection of his story begins. So we'll just kind of fly over Acts 6, 7, 8, 9, and I'll, I'll tell a little bit of the story. We want to look at this. Acts chapter 6 tells us about a guy named Stephen. Stephen was a deacon in the Jerusalem church. Stephen was serving tables, feeding widows, doing all the good deacon work that was going on. Stephen also was doing uh, signs, wonders, and miracles in the name of Jesus. And here's what really happened in the first century in Jerusalem, if you did signs, wonders, and miracles in the name of Jesus, the other religious establishment community did not like it because you were taking glory from them. And so they 
hauled Stephen in front of the high priest and they hauled him in front of the council and they tried him and they said, what's going on here? And he preaches this beautiful sermon. He didn't quite get to finish it though because in the midst of it, when he's glorifying Jesus, they grab him, drag him outside of the court, drag him outside of the city and stone him and put him to death. We see that in Acts chapter seven. This is where we're introduced to Paul. It says, Paul, who was still at the time going by the name Saul, Saul was the one who oversaw the execution of Stephen. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 3 says, Saul approved of his execution. And there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Paul was... Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. See, Saul, who later is known as Paul, was a rising star within the Jewish religious worldview. He had all the right education. He had the right mentor. He had the right background. He had the right zeal. He had the right theological perspectives to be appreciated greatly by those who were in power. And he was actually commissioned to go and begin shutting down the church of Jesus Christ. And he continues on like this into Acts chapter 9. And in Acts chapter 9, we see that he gets a hold of special permission and he's sent from Jerusalem to the city of Damascus. And he is on his way to Damascus to go and arrest more Christians. He's going to go persecute more Christians for the faith that they have placed in Jesus. This is what their plan is. Paul has an entourage with him. He's got some people with him and he's on his way to Damascus. And on the road to Damascus, something happens and he sees something. And what he sees causes him to fall on his face. And he hears a voice. (laughs) Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, who's already fallen to the ground, trying to figure out what's going on, says, who are you, Lord? And the voice replies back, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. And it says that the men who were with him, that they heard the voice, but that they saw nothing. Can you imagine being with Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus? You were on your way, commissioned by your religious establishment to go and persecute followers of a different way. You're walking down the road. You're on your way to persecute followers of Jesus. The guy who is your leader gets knocked down, falls on the ground, sees something, freaks out, and hears a voice. And you, at the entourage with him, also hear the voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And you're going, what is going on? Saul's freaking out, laying on the ground, says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, who you're persecuting. Now all the other guys go, Jesus, who you're persecuting? This is intense. That's probably what they thought. You know, one of the weird things about the Bible is, is there's so many things the Bible doesn't tell us. And this is why you need to keep a list of questions you want to ask God one day. <laughs> like Luke wrote the book of Acts. Luke wrote the book of Acts and, and he recounts this story for us in the book of Acts. Do you know how easy it would have been for Luke to just go, little parenthetical inclusion in here, and by the way, all of those in Paul's entourage also came to Christ. It'd be cool. I don't know what happened to them and that bothers me. I would like to know if all of those who heard the voice on the road to Damascus also fell on their knees and said, Jesus, please help us and save us. I'd like to know that. We don't know that. I'm going to ask the Father one day. Okay. 
What ends up happening? Paul stands up from being knocked down on the ground, seeing what he saw, hearing the voice he heard, stands up, opens his eyes, and he can't see. He's blind. Those who are with him lead him by the hand into the city of Damascus, and Jesus speaks to somebody else. Jesus speaks to one of the followers of Jesus in the city of Damascus, whose name is Ananias. And Jesus appears before him, and he says, this is what he says, Acts 9, verses 15 to 16. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I'll show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And Ananias, before Jesus said this to him, Ananias is hanging out, just hanging out in Damascus, knows that Saul is probably coming to persecute him because they had all been scattered there. So maybe he was from Jerusalem. Maybe he ended up in Damascus because of the persecution of Christians. This is what Jesus comes. He appears to Ananias, and he says, I want you to go and pray for a guy. Ananias is like, Jesus, I'm your your boy. I'll go anywhere you want me to go. I want you to go pray for this guy named Saul. And he goes, Saul, who's trying to kill people? And Jesus goes, yeah, that guy. And Ananias goes, that's a bad idea, Lord. Have you thought about this? You're the sovereign Lord of the universe, and I, I love you, and I worship you, and I will obey you, but have you given this a second thought? Do you know that I'm a follower of Jesus and Paul is currently imprisoning followers of Jesus? And that's when Jesus says, yeah, and I want you to go and pray for him, heal him, and let him know that I have plans for him. I have plans for him. You need to go to him. So Ananias prays for Saul like he's commanded to. Something like scales fall off of Saul's eyes and he sees and he begins preaching Jesus. Now, fast forward about 15 years. 15 years go by, Saul's preaching the gospel. What he does is he takes his lifetime of study of what we call the Old Testament, and he takes his lifetime of study of the Old Testament, and over these 15 years, he begins to relearn it in light of and through the lens of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. He begins to look at the Old Testament in a different way and to conceive of how Jesus is the Messiah that God had always promised, that God had sent, that had now come and preached the gospel of the kingdom. Saul is now converted. The amazing story going on 15 years later. He is in his local church in the city of Antioch. That's what it says, Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting... The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Paul is being sent on his first missionary journey. What I don't want you to miss, and I've said this before and I'm going to say it again, don't miss the fact that Paul and Barnabas are being sent out in the power of the Holy Spirit, but they're being sent out with fasting and prayer, and they're being commissioned by the church in Antioch. They are not going on their own authority. They are being commissioned by the Spirit and by their local church. They are laying hands on them and supporting them and sending them. It's not like any of us can actually do this on our own. It's important for us to know this because not even these guys who look so cavalier about what they do and so daring and running to the front lines of missionary ministry, they had a sending church. They had a community. They had a call from God that was affirmed by the leaders of their church, and then they fasted and prayed and were commissioned to go out and advance the kingdom of Jesus into places where the gospel had not yet been proclaimed. See, even people like Paul don't do it alone. They've got a group with them. None of us do this on our own. You try to do this on your own, it won't last long. Think about the way. We have in, like I said, in the New Testament, we've got 13 of Paul's letters. Nine of them 
were written to churches, to people who he knew, to communities of faith, like the Galatians. These churches of Galatia received this letter from him, but I'm going to show you in a minute, they knew him well. There's four other letters, they're written to individuals. We've got First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. None of the doctrine that we have here in the New Testament is sort of put together in this systematic, formulaic way. All of the doctrine that we have in the New Testament comes out of real-life problems with real practitioners of faith who are trying to solve real issues in real churches with real people. It would be nice if we had, like, one of those doctrinal charts that said, here's the big, important things you should stick to, and, and this is the only thing that we have. Now, that is what the New Testament has become, but I just want you to see that all of it's written relationally. Paul did not sit down and go, here is my doctrinal statement. Paul sat down and said, Paul, an apostle to the churches of Galatia, grace and peace to you. And he wrote them a letter. It was all done through relationship and all of the doctrinal beauty that we see and we will see through this study in Galatians was all coming out of that relationship that he had with those churches in Galatia. So who are the churches of Galatia? Well, like I said, the church in Antioch, where he was hanging out before, sends him out, fasts and pray, send him to go and preach the gospel where the gospel has not yet been named. I love maps, and so here's a map for you. There's Antioch just north of present-day Syria. You see all the other cities on the top part above the water in the darker area. That's all modern-day Turkey. And so you can see that Paul actually sets sail from Antioch, and he makes his way to the island of Cyprus, to Salamis, and then he makes his way over to Paphos, then back up to the continent in Perga. This is the journey that he's on, the first journey. We see this in Acts chapter 13, chapter 14. He makes his way then to the second city, this Antioch. That's called Pisidian Antioch. Here's the problem. There's a guy named Antiochus who really liked naming cities after himself. So that's why you got two. Paul gets up in the Jewish synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, the second Antioch, the one that is currently circled on there. He gets up on the Sabbath and he preaches a sermon about the forgiveness of sins and salvation that can be found in Jesus. And here's what happens when Paul shows up in a new city and he goes to the Jewish synagogue and he says, hey, I've got a word for you. And they say, welcome, give us this word of encouragement. And he stands up and he preaches the gospel of Jesus. Here's what happens everywhere he goes. Some people go, wow, that is amazing. We believe that and we want to be followers of Jesus. And everybody else freaks out. I'm sure there's a mushy middle in there somewhere where people go, I'm not really interested just because we have that in our city too. But everywhere Paul goes and preaches the gospel, people either get saved or they freak out. And so the people who freaked out in Antioch, in Pisidian Antioch, in the synagogue there, they actually make a plan and they chase Paul out of the city. So Paul, doing what he does, moves on to the next city. He moves to Iconium. Then Acts 13 and 14, it says they went to Iconium and, and the same thing happens. They get up and preach. Some people respond to Jesus. And then in Iconium, they actually make a plot to kill him. Now, I've preached the gospel in some different places in the world. I've never knowingly had a plot to kill me going on. But um, this seemed like it was kind of normal from this point onward in Paul's life. They just made a plot to kill him. So he's in Iconium, finds out that there's a plot to kill him, says, ah, you know what? I think we should move on to the next town. Good idea, Paul. They move on to Lystra. In Lystra, they move in and they actually see a crippled man healed. And there they preach the gospel again. The crippled man is healed gloriously 
for the glory of God in the name of Jesus. And here's what happens. Some of the angry Jewish people from Antioch and from Iconium, they catch up to Paul in Lystra. And this time they don't just have their plot to kill him. They actually get a hold of him. They drag him outside of the city and they stone him and they leave him for dead. And I wondered this week reading this text, if Paul thought of Stephen the martyr in Jerusalem. And they pull Paul out of the pulpit. They drag him outside and they leave him for dead. Here's the thing about Paul. He's hard to kill. Okay, Paul gets up, I'm sure beaten and battered. Dusts himself off. What does he do? Well, let's go to the next city. Next day, he goes to Derby. This is what it says in Acts chapter 14. When they had preached the gospel to that city, talking about Derby, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is the thing. Paul goes Pisidian Antioch, they get angry with them, chase them out of town. Paul goes to Iconium, they get angry with him, plot to kill him, chase him out of town. He goes to Lystra, preaches the gospel, has great fruit there. The people from Antioch and Iconium catch up with him, drag him outside, stone him, and leave him for dead. Paul gets up the next day, goes to Derby. Here's what I'm doing if I'm Paul. I'm not going back the way I just came. Paul finishes up in Derby, makes many disciples there. Hey, let's pack you know, all of our gear up. Well, let's move our way back through the cities that we just came. Let's reverse the order on the map. Let's see that again. So you've got Derby. There it is. They go back to Lystra, to Iconium, to Antioch, and then they make their way home in the reverse order. All of those churches, you see Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. that's the south part of the Roman province of Galatia. These are the churches of Galatia that Paul is writing to. It's modern-day Turkey, and Paul has gone and evangelized in these cities. Paul has made disciples in these cities. Paul has had his assassination plotted in these cities. Paul was stoned and left for dead in one of these cities. And then Paul went back to all these cities. He established churches in all these cities. He appointed elders over all of those churches in all of those cities. See, I'm saying this so that you see the context that the circular letter written to the churches of Galatia is not a theological rebuke to some people that he does not know. These are people in churches he has suffered and almost died to plant. They're churches who know him and they know what he's about. This is a pastoral-hearted letter written for the sake of the sheep and aimed at the wolves who've come in, the false teachers who followed Paul into Galatia. We need to know the context of this because it gets spicy real quick. Like next week, Paul's now talking about them departing the gospel. Like when we write a letter, we say, uh, Dear Duncan, I hope things are going well for you. Things are going well with me. The girls are growing. Allison is aging like a fine bottle of wine. <laughs> I hope everything is going well with you and your studies, you and your work, you and your whatever. By the way, I wanted to run something past you. Just a thought, you should change the way you're handling this. Grace and peace to you, Brett. That's how we write letters. 
Paul starts like this. Paul, an apostle, he's about to explain his authority to the churches in Galatia. What the heck are you doing? That's honestly where next week goes. You just need to know that. And so you need to know that this is a pastoral-hearted letter to the flock that he shepherded in Galatia that is aimed at putting to death the false teachers and wolves, so to speak. He wants to put them out. They have come in with a false, poisonous gospel, and we're going to see in the next couple of weeks when we look at this that this is a problem for Paul. They are undermining his authority, and they are undermining the gospel of grace that he preaches. So that's Paul. That's the churches of Galatia. Let's look at his apostolic authority because we need to understand more of this. Look at this, verse 1. Paul, an apostle. Technical term, right? Leader in the church. Not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. It's a bit of an unusual way, even within the pattern of what I said, to start laying out your credentials in the first line. Especially when you're laying out your credentials and it's actually like your divine commission. It's a bit of a risky move to put into the first line of your letter. It's a deviation, but it's one of the reasons that Paul had to write the letter in the first place. He's reminding the churches in Galatia, who he came to, who he sacrificially served so that they would hear the message of the gospel. He's reminding them that it was Jesus Christ, the risen king who commissioned him, gave him the apostolic authority to go and preach the gospel in these places where the name of Jesus had not yet been named. So Paul is saying in the introduction line of his letter, I am the real deal. I know there are others there who are preaching a different gospel, but I'm the authentic real deal. He's saying it didn't come through man, came through Jesus. He's saying the origin of his apostolic ministry and his apostolic authority is divine, not human. Here's the thing. Jesus is not calling any more capital A apostles. So in effect, Paul's the last guy that gets to say that. We have the apostolic authority here in the 27 books of the New Testament. Paul's telling them who he is. Look at verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle, then look what it says, not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Don't forget that the person Jesus met on the road to Damascus was the risen, resurrected king, and that's who he says here. But through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. I met the risen king. I saw him. And then he says, verse 2, and all the brothers who are with me. He writes this letter. And he states who it's from, and he says, it's from me, Paul, and all the guys with me. It's from me, Paul, an apostle, and all the brothers who are with me. Do you see the categorical separation that he is one of the brothers, but he is also an apostle? There's something he is saying about that. Now you go, why is he doing this? Why is he differentiating himself from those who are with him? Is he the kind of guy that just goes around writing letters, pumping his own tires, right? Because nobody wants to hang out with the guy who's just always pumping his own tires. That's not what's happening here. Paul is like a master architect, master engineer. He's a master builder. He is uniquely commissioned by God to go lay foundations. He takes the message of the good news of the gospel of Jesus, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He takes this to the whole world. He has been uniquely called as an apostle, which means that Jesus himself commissioned him to go preach his gospel of his kingdom. This is Jesus commissioning Paul. It's not something we're doing today. We do the continuation of Paul's ministry, but we don't show up with apostolic authority. We ground ourselves in the scriptures. So his mission trips into these cities, strategic ventures, 
He comes in, preaches the gospel, leads people to Christ, makes disciples, sets up and organizes the community, appoints elders, and then he moves on. He lays the foundation. Do you see this? He lays the foundation that the rest of the gospel work can be built upon. And he's traveling through the Roman province of Galatia, and he nearly dies doing this, but he lays this foundation, and here's what happens. Other people come in and go, yeah, yeah, Paul, he didn't quite get it. We know you heard from Paul, and that's it's really wonderful. Paul, probably a great guy. But we want to just add to the message. He didn't quite get it all the way there for you. And this is what Paul calls, we'll see this in next week, verses 6 to 10. This is what Paul calls another gospel. That false teachers came in after him and added to the gospel. And here's the thing about the gospel of Jesus. There is no, the gospel of Jesus and will save you. It's just the gospel of Jesus. And so these false teachers come in, and I don't know what motivations they had, but they come in after Paul and they present this other gospel. And one of the ways that they did that was to undermine his apostolic credentials. And that's why the letter starts out with a very firm defense of what he's saying. He's also defending the gospel itself. This is what John Stott says on the topic. He says, the apostles of Jesus Christ were unique unique in their experience of the Jesus of history, unique in their sight of the risen Lord, unique in their commission by Christ's authority, and unique in their inspiration by Christ's Spirit. We may not exalt our opinion over theirs or claim that our authority is as great as theirs, for their opinions and authority are Christ's. If we would bow to his authority, we must therefore bow to theirs. So, Christ City... It's not like this is a historically located and locked into the ancient world problem. I don't know if you've noticed this in your sharing the gospel with folks, but one of the things that you could try and do is you could try and undermine the authority of the words of Scripture. And if you undermine the authority of the words of Scripture, you can therefore and thereby undermine the gospel itself. So one of the things that we have to do in our conversations is to talk about how we have an authoritative Bible. We have our apostolic authority found here. The apostolic authority that was brought to bear as we read words of Scripture written by those who had that apostolic authority in the first century. They write the words of Scripture. This work continues on. But if you can undermine the authority of Scripture, you can undermine the gospel. That's exactly what happened in Galatia. They undermined the authority of Paul who brought them the gospel, and they undermined the gospel itself. Paul and the churches in Galatia, Paul and his apostolic authority. What about Paul's gospel of grace? You can just tell as you read this. Like it's, it's not, if you, if you read through the book this week, it's six chapters, it's an easy devotional sitting. When you read it, it's not like Paul sort of walking up and knocking on their door and saying, hello, I'd like to come in and have a nice conversation. It's kind of like he kicks the door down. Paul, an apostle, not through men or by men, but through Jesus Christ and God our Father who raised him from the dead and also the guys with me. Grace and peace to you. Next week, what are you doing abandoning the gospel that I brought you? What is the gospel of grace that Paul had brought them? Verses 1 to 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. 
to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's the introduction from Paul defending his authority and defending his gospel. Here's what his gospel was. That Jesus gave himself for our sins, dying as a substitute for us upon the cross. He says this happened according to the will of our God and Father. He says Jesus gave himself for our sins, which he's going to unpack through the rest of the letter. Jesus gave himself for our sins. He is saying that Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice for our sin in our place. He's using language that would tell us that Jesus was a substitutionary sacrifice for us. But unlike every other substitutionary sacrifice that had ever been made in human history, unlike any other sacrifice ever made, Jesus was a willing sacrifice. (laughs) He gave himself for our sins. It's when we celebrate communion, we don't just talk about how Christ died upon the cross We don't talk about Christ being taken and put to death upon the cross. He gave himself for us, willingly laying his life down as a substitutionary sacrifice. He dies in our place and for our sin. If you discount this, you discount the gospel. Jesus saw the cross, and he saw the horror of the cross. And he saw the suffering of the cross and he saw the abandonment that he would face upon the cross and he saw the wrath of God for sin that he would bear upon the cross and Jesus looked at the cross and he said yes. He said yes to the cross and it says in this text to deliver us from the present evil age. When it says deliver, I I, I think there's a temptation for us to read that word in an understated way. Um, To use the word deliver which is the same word for the guy who drops off Amazon orders at my house. There's a temptation for us in 21st century English to just lower the status of what that word might mean. We can look at it too normally, too understated. Delivered is rescued. It's rescued. Delivered, saved rescued from peril. J.B. Lightfoot in his commentary on Galatians says the gospel is a rescue, an emancipation from a state of bondage. Oh, I like that quote. The gospel is a rescue. We talked about this last week a little bit, but an emancipation, a freeing from a state of bondage. It is a rescue that results in freedom, freedom from chains, freedom from bondage, freedom from sin and Satan and hell and death and the grave, freedom from trying to find and earn another way to be saved. You have been rescued from that burden. You have a choice. You can carry upon yourself the weight of what you have done that you ought not to have done and what you should have done but you did not do, you can carry the weight of that on your own if you want or you can gloriously say to Jesus, please take it. I want to carry it no more. You've been freed. 
And it says in here that you've been rescued from the present evil age. Well, what does that mean? Look at this again. There's verses 3 and 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. See this. Jesus does not rescue us out of the present evil age. He rescues us from the present evil age. And there's actually a big difference in that. The Bible divides history into two ages. So you've got this age that we live in, and then you've got the age to come. And this is how Scripture has explained this from front to back. You've got this age, and you've got the age to come. But in Christ's death and in his resurrection, something happened. In the resurrection, this age that is the future age that we look to, the age of the kingdom of God, the age of the coming reign of Jesus, something happened to that. And in Christ's resurrection, that new age, that new age of the kingdom of Jesus started to break into this age, our age, what Paul calls this present evil age. Something of the kingdom of Jesus began to break in. Something of the future age, the age to come, breaks into our midst here and now. Jesus is risen from the grave. heaven currently breaking in on earth, if you want to say it in that way. Currently breaking into our midst, the kingdom of Jesus taking hold. So hear me, Christ City, if you are in Christ, you are new. Eternal life has already begun in you. The eternal age to come is at work in you right now. There is an overlap of sorts between these two. Something is happening. The resurrection life of Christ is breaking in in our midst. The resurrection life of Christ breaks in in our midst in this present evil age when we gather together to worship. When you kneel down beside your bed, beside your couch, beside your office chair, when you kneel down and you start and you pray and you say, Our Father who is in heaven, holy be your name. Something of the kingdom that is to come breaks in to our midst. When we pray together as a congregation, when we read scripture, when we hear the word preached, when we celebrate the sacraments, when we respond in generosity, when we do justice as we're called to, to the orphan and the widow and the refugee and the poor, when we do these things, there is something of the future age that is breaking into the present evil age that we have already been delivered from. So Christ gives himself as a sacrifice willingly lays his life down to deliver us from the present evil age to usher in the future age of the kingdom that's breaking in in the midst of the church right now. This is the life we live in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Do you see? There is a then and there is a now. There is an old and there is a new. So we're not any longer primarily identified with the present evil age. We're primarily identified with the coming kingdom of Jesus, and we live that out in the midst of the present evil age. These two ages have an overlap, and part of that overlap is you. 
Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14, Paul the Apostle wrote this, and he said, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Do you see that we have been delivered and rescued from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his beloved Son? There is a from and a to. There is movement happening here. There's a there and then there's a here. We've been brought near to Jesus in this way. We've been rescued from the bondage of this present age and we have found freedom in the gospel. But we've not been pulled out of this world. Jesus doesn't rescue us out of the present evil age. He rescues us from the present evil age. And there's a big difference. We as a church have been called to be a beacon of light and hope in the midst of darkness. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 5 leaves us with this wonderful doxology, this song of praise, words of praise of God's glory. To whom be the glory forever and ever. To whom be the glory forever and ever because ultimately... Paul is delivering the message of the gospel that is not about what we do for God, that is about what God has already done for us in Christ. And that will forever be worthy of our praise. Would you stand and respond with me? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.